Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Our guest today is Tessa Miller. Tessa is the author of What Doesn't Kill You, A Life with Chronic Illness. She is also a journalist whose work focuses on chronic illness, disability, and health justice. We talk today about the insecurities around publishing a memoir, writing about bodily functions, and Tessa's favorite gluten-free snacks. The Stacks Book Club pick for February is I Live a Life Like Yours by Jan Gru, and we will be discussing the book on Wednesday, February 23rd with this week's guest, Tessa Miller. If you want more of The Stacks, you can find bonus episodes, a community of readers, a monthly virtual book club, and more by joining The Stacks Pack at patreon.com slash The Stacks. Joining The Stacks Pack not only gives you inside access to the show, but it also makes it possible for me to make The Stacks week in and week out. I want to take a quick moment to give a shout out to our newest members of The Stacks Pack, Alyssa Browning-Couch, Sabrina Sarmiento, Michelle T., Jenilee Sue, Victoria Geiselnik, Alicia Kyle, Marissa Nyenhaus, Dcast, and Tia B. Thank you all for joining the Stacks Pack and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack for existing because without all of you, there is no show. To join us, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. Okay, now it's time to talk with the wonderful Tessa Miller. All right, everybody. I'm very excited. I am here today with Tessa Miller, who is the author of What Doesn't Kill You, A Life with Chronic Illness, Lessons from a Body in Revolt. Tessa, welcome to the Stacks. Thanks, Tracy. I'm so excited. I'm really excited to have you. I have a lot of questions for you, but generally we sort of always start in this place, which is can you just sort of tell us about yourself? Because I feel like your professional bio, which I have read in the introduction, (laughs) doesn't really do you justice. Yeah. So I am a writer, I guess. I always feel a little bit weird calling myself that because like I've written a book. I feel like I need a few more under my belt before I take on that title. But so my first book came out last year. Paperback is coming out uh, the day today. Comes out. Yes, yeah, which today. is so exciting. So I spent the last 10-ish years as a journalist in New York, um, mostly focusing on health and science, but also doing some more like general politics, entertainment, that kind of stuff, wherever I was kind of needed in the newsroom. I left full-time journalism in 2016, right before the 2016 election, as you can imagine, working (laughs) in journalism (laughs) for the lead up to the 2016 election was uh, brutal, to say the least. So I, I became freelance then and just was doing more writing than editing. I used to do more editing. So that's kind of the professional background. Uh, Now I am a graduate student at the City College of New York, which I love. Shout out to CUNY for giving people access to affordable education. And I don't have to go into $200,000 of debt to get a master's degree. So I'm studying um, language and literacy, Mm. which I feel like would be right up your alley, Tracy. It's like, it's part linguistics, 
And I know that you loved like cultish and word yeah. slut. And that's like a lot of the kind of stuff that I'm studying right now. And then the literacy half is studying theoretical and practical ways to teach and to teach adult learners is what I'm focusing on. So eventually I'll probably teach college or maybe at like a English as a second language kind of program, something like that. I'm not quite sure yet, but I also teach writing to undergrads there. Oh. Um, and they are adorable. They're all like, <laughs> they're like 18 to 23 ish on the older end. And they roast me literally <laughs> every day. Have they read um, your book? Gen Z is something else. Some of them have, yeah. And I actually have some students who are chronically ill or disabled. And so, you know, sometimes I recommend my book to them so that they know that, like, you know, we're kind of on the same page with that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, some of them have no idea that I have a book or anything. They just think I'm like some lady. Teaches That's them. how I know you're not like an old teacher because old teachers <laughs> always recommend their books. It's like on the syllabus. It's like, this is a class about puppies. By the way, you need to read my book about yeah. chronic illness. <laughs> Right. We'll be reading totally. that in the second half of the semester. I, I know. I have a lot of, I've had a lot of professors that have done that. And they'll be like, read my book that came out in 1987 yeah. that, you know, is no longer all that relevant. But yes, so that's kind of the professional side of my life. The personal side um, is that I live with chronic illnesses, which we're going to talk about when we talk about the book. So I live with uh, Crohn's disease which is an immune disease that attacks my digestive system. And I also live with celiac disease, which uh, I think more people are probably familiar with because gluten-free diets are all the rage, but yeah. it's um, like an immune response to gluten in the small intestine. So that one's pretty easily managed with a gluten-free diet. And luckily there's so many good gluten-free snacks now, which we will also talk about yes. later. Um, but Crohn's, you know, is, is notoriously difficult to, to manage. And um, so I take uh, immunosuppressants for that, which, you know, during a pandemic has been interesting, just say. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of my, my background. Um, I live in Brooklyn. I have four dogs <laughs> and a husband. <laughs> I had two dogs. He had two dogs. We fell in love and got married. So now we have a circus of dogs. And yeah, that's fantastic. That's I love the rundown. It. I love that you are hesitant to say that you're a writer, even though you've had years of experience as a journalist, which to me, I feel like a journalist is a writer. Is Am I wrong? Am I missing something? No, no, you're right. You're right. I just feel like, um, I don't know, I think of writer with like a capital W. Yeah, but I and feel I, like a journalist is definitely that. Yeah, no, some pe I've always like uh, introduced myself as a journalist okay. and not a writer, but now I do less particularly hard journalism and more writing. Mm -hmm. And especially with this book, which was like a combination of journalism and memoir. Yeah. Um, and I even write in the book about how I'm like not really a journalist anymore. I'm like kind of on, right, I right, don't know, right. I have like a foot in and a foot out. And so I just always called myself a journalist. And for some reason, when I, when I try to be like, I'm a writer, it just like, it's caught, <laughs> it gets caught in my throat. I'm like a writer. Not this imposter um, syndrome, Tessa. We have to get you out oh my of God. this. It's, it's so horrible. funny too, because a friend of mine has a book coming out and she, um, sent me a text the other day about how she's dealing with imposter syndrome. Like she's at that place where mm. the book is done, but it hasn't come out yet. Mm -hmm. And so now she's in the phase of the creative process where she's like, everyone's going to hate it. Sure. I'm, I'm going to have to go into hiding, like, which I also felt right before it came out. Right. My book came out and I just, you know, I was telling her that I think imposter syndrome is kind of bullshit like you're the expert on the book right. that you wrote and I'm like I can tell other people this so easily <laughs> but when it comes to me I'm like I'm a writer yeah no a thousand mark? percent yeah a thousand percent I feel I still feel that way people will be like oh well you're like the book expert I'm like the what I right. I occasionally read and talk about exactly. books <laughs> like, I'm like, what do you mean but I think it's just hard to like feel confident in a thing that you create for yourself. Like, it's not like you have a business card that's like, 
Tessa Miller, writer, you know, or like I don't have something that's like Tracy Thomas, book expert. Expert, right. Which I I mean, I definitely am not. There's just too many books in the world for anyone to be a book expert. I feel like it's like impossible. But I totally feel the insecurity around the label thing. I just think it's so interesting because I just I lie, you know, journalism and writing in this, no, in totally my mind. Right. They're the same. But it's journalist just- is my dream job. <laughs> I want to be a hard hitting investigative. I want to be, you, you know, Carl so Bernstein. Yeah, I want to yeah. be like really it, exposing. I want to be what I, on the lam with my with yeah, my coat. like exposing presidents. Yes. And, oh my gosh, yeah. the bad oh, yeah. guys. Totally. That was that was my dream when I went to journalism school, and then you work in journalism for a while, and it's just, I mean, it's 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 a it's a great industry and a greatly terrible industry yeah. at the same time and you know I got sick in I got really really sick in 2015 and it's just like you have to grind in journalism and the hours were so long and a lot of people just have the appetite for that you know like I right. I worked in a newsroom with people who would just like stay in the newsroom all night and keep a bottle of scotch in their desk drawer. And, oh, I couldn't you know, do it. I just, yeah, it was just, it, it got to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't really manage it anymore physically. Mm-hmm. And also emotionally, it's hard too, you know, because like, you're just hearing about the worst stuff that's ever happened to right, people right, every right, day. Right. And especially when I worked at the Daily Beast for several years as an editor, we would have meetings several times a day. And a lot of the, a lot of the Daily Beast strategy was to do like local crime stories and Mm. elevate them to a national level. And so it was just, you know, like murders and assaults. And I think some people are good at separating that kind of stuff, but I just like don't sleep at night. Yeah. Um, That's a lot. And, you know, you have to call people for interviews and comments and stuff sometimes when they're having the worst moments of their lives and right. for me it was like give these people some space but that's not how it works like right. you ha- you have to get the story and so that was hard for me too but some people are just made for yeah. for that kind of stuff um I like to be a little more removed from it yeah now. I mean I think that I would like to be a journalist but now all the things you're saying I'm like I don't want to do any of that I think if you could be like a freelance investigative journalist, that's what I'd want. That would be Mm -hmm. chef's kiss. Like, because you could do it at your own pace. Yeah. You wouldn't have to go through the muck of the stories that you're not working on. Right. And, you know, carry all that terrible stuff with you that you hear in the newsroom every day, all that stuff. And then you can just like, you know, wear your press fedora. And yeah, exactly. Bust into the White House and go and, and go meet Deep Throat in a parking lot. Exactly. You know, like that's what I, exactly. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be like, oh, honey, I have to go to get a drink, and then like <laughs> go into a garage and meet a stranger and find out and that the president's been smoke taping a com- cigarette yeah, with a exactly. long cigarette holder. Yeah, yeah. I have gloves yeah. on. You know, be so cash. Oh yeah, Lo- long, yeah. <laughs> long gloves. It's in LA, I'm like wearing like a full winter look in LA. <laughs> like, people are like, it's July, man. Like I, I, it's, it's more of just gets me in the mood. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> yeah, this is totally normal. Okay. I want to talk about your book, obviously. I have so many questions for you, but the first one and the thing that stuck out to me, I think from having so many conversations with so many authors from different, like marginalized groups or groups that are, you know, I guess marginalized is the word though. I despise it. I think a thing that people always say to me is like, I didn't write this for the outside person. Like black authors are like, Mm -hmm. I wrote this for black, black readers or, Mm -hmm. you know, queer authors. I wrote this story that I wish that I had read when I, you know, whatever. But you specifically say in your book that you're writing not only for chronically ill and disabled people, but also for those people who know them or love them or may come in contact with them. And I'm really curious about that decision because in my interviews, sort of a rare choice. Mm, Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I kind of had this dual vision when I was writing it. And the one side was definitely very specific to the chronically ill and disabled community for sure. And especially people who are newly diagnosed 
And often people will email me and they're just totally blindsided by, you know, having to suddenly navigate our healthcare system and they don't know how to, yeah, that's a big, that's a big one. Um, They don't know how to talk to romantic partners or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I was just thinking of all these things that a newly diagnosed person would need. So that's very insular, I guess, to the community itself. But also what people write to me about and this conversation that comes up a lot in my support groups and and places like that is that people feel like they don't have the language to say what they need to say to their loved ones. Mm. And so I was sort of envisioning this as like something they could give to a family member or a friend or even a boss or something to help them kind of understand and also to give them a little bit of like a a barrier in that conversation, you know? Yeah. Like if they don't if they're afraid to have that conversation with someone, if they don't know what to say, it's like you know, I can just hand you this this book. So it was both. It was for chronically ill people first, but also I knew that it needed to be something that a non-chronically ill or non-disabled person could also read and come away with a better understanding of chronic illness and disability. And how does that change how you write? Like, are you Mm. constantly writing and thinking about both kinds of audiences? Because I know like One of my biggest complaints is when I think an author of color or a black author has written for the white gaze and it's like, Mm -hmm. then we went down and we had grits. Grits are, you know, and it's like, they like explain it or like, then I had put on my do rag to make sure that my braids or, you know, like whatever, whatever it is. And I'm like, not my braids, but like that kind of like explanation and like awareness of the other. And then also... Mm -hmm. In your case, you're writing for two audiences who have, you know, and obviously not all chronic illness or disability is the same. And all of that goes to me without saying, but I should say it just in case for other people. But how are you sort of navigating telling your story, which is very specific to you, slash Mm -hmm. telling the story of the greater community to the community, slash telling the story Mm -hmm. of chronic (laughs) illness to people who maybe are not aware or thinking about it? Yeah, it was a it was a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it was hard I for me often, to even ask the question. Yeah, no, I often felt like I was writing definitely two books in one, but also mm-hmm. sometimes three or four books in right. one. Um, so, thank God for my editor, Barbara Jones. <laughs> Shout out to Barbara Jones at Macmillan. Um, she really helped me with like how do we put all of these together? Because when I first started writing, I was like. I'll just do part one. Here's all the memoir. And then part two, all the reporting. Or I also thought like, maybe I'll do a chapter of memoir and then a chapter of reporting. And then, and that didn't feel good either. So it was, that was a, probably the biggest challenge of the organization of everything. But when I was actually writing the book, I was thinking less about the comfort of a non-disabled Mm-hmm. reader mm-hmm. and more about honestly and correctly representing my community. Mm-hmm. And so that I think has come up a lot in past interviews that I've done where people are like you write really uh graphically about your body. Some of the details are gruesome was a word that someone used in one of my interviews. And I think it's because I wanted to write honestly about what my body does. And I have an inflammatory bowel disease. Like it's not super sexy. I can't write about it in a way that I can make it sound cool and chic or whatever. But I wanted to be really (laughs) honest about what my body does. And a lot of that is gross. And like bodies do strange and scary and disgusting things. And I think my background in science journalism, like I wanted to make sure I was accurate Mm -hmm. with the descriptions of what chronically ill bodies can do. But I think that for and and a lot of the stuff in the book, like it's very common topics of conversation within the community or within support groups like that, that isn't shocking at all to people that I talk to who also have similar illnesses and stuff. But I think to a non-disabled reader, a lot of what they've read in the past, maybe about disability is 
sanitized, I mm-hmm. guess, and full of euphemisms for their comfort. They're yeah. centering a non-disabled, non-chronically ill reader. And that was something I was very adamant about in the editing process was like, I don't want to, um, I don't want to make this like, I, I don't want to use euphemisms. I don't want to use substitute words for bodily functions. And I don't, you know, I don't want to skip over the actual details of what this disease does to a body. Mm-hmm. And thankfully my, my editors were on board with that. But I think that that's a common fight for people who write about um, disability is like, you know, oh, how are people going to react to this? Like, you know, and readers do have an ick factor. And I was thinking of that too. But again, at the, at, when I was making all these decisions about the language in the book, it just, it wasn't to, to center someone who might get a little bit grossed out. I would hope that the reader could overcome that impulse to stick with the writing. So Um, interesting because I just can't, I just don't understand how you could write a book about inflammatory bowel disease without without talking about yeah poop I, <laughs> and, and blood and like guts like I, I don't I, know either Tracy, I don't but get, people do it I'm like literally thinking about your book like well what would she have said like I went to the restroom and it was gross yeah. like I, like I don't like and that's still like so, not very like there's just yeah so I had read one well I had read some books before I wrote this book about inflammatory bowel disease most of them were written by nurses or nutritionists and they were very much about like, this is what you should eat now and and that kind of thing. There wasn't a lot of, um, you know, like description of what actually happens to your body when you have IBD. But I did read one other book. It was written by a, a man with Crohn's disease. He was a food critic and it's a memoir about basically how he can't eat anymore and he's a food critic and he had to be on um like a all liquid diet for a year for to rest his digestive system and there were parts of that book that I really really liked but it still just glossed over all of the details of what the illness actually did. He I would see. he would mention abdominal pain. I see. But he but wouldn't like, talk about like what the actually was going on. No. It was more just no like, poop, no blood, no it. vomit, like nothing. Nothing. And I just felt like I, f- I feel like that's such a disservice because if somebody with bowel disease is reading these books and they're having all of these very scary things right. happen to their body. And then they read these books where that's all just glossed over. They probably think they have like the worst right. case of this right. that's ever existed. They're like, yes, um, I have the abdominal pain, but I also have a lot yeah, of other things happening. Exactly. And I just had so wished that someone had actually described that mm. to me when I, especially when I was first diagnosed. I mean, once I joined support groups and talked to other chronically ill people and people with my same illness, I started to realize like, oh, we all, you know, we have different presentations, but a lot of overlaps of symptoms and that kind of thing. And that's when I started to feel less afraid Mm -hmm. because when you're reading something that says I have this illness, but then I'm not going to tell you any details about what this illness does to my body, you're kind of left like, Okay, I I have no idea then like what right. where where do I fit in in this like range of symptoms that can happen. And that's a big focus and picking the right language to describe stuff like um I use butthole a lot <laughs> in the book which the New York Times mentioned and it's probably the, the proudest moment of my life. Yeah, when- it's probably the first time that's been in the New York Times book I review section. It- I think that it is. Um, Good for you. I'm going to put that on my tombstone. Um, Tessa Miller lived a life, butthole. Yeah, 
lived, died as she lived, but a whole. Um, but there's a lot of choice that goes into that funnily. And it's like, you know, you can choose the very clinical language, right? Or you can choose the way that we actually talk about our bodies. And right, right, right. You know, it just, I, I tried to write this book in a way that really anyone could read it. I tried to keep it very not clinical when I was describing, you know, the stuff that the disease does and body parts and that kind of thing. I tried to keep it more like if you were just talking between friends, mm-hmm. you would call it your butthole. Like that's just the, yeah. that's just how, that's, that's how it just would go. The word that we all use, yeah. you know? So yeah, there were a lot of interesting decisions that I had to to make when writing those sections. I'm glad you went with butthole. I think it made the book for me. I liked it. I love a butthole. My God. I, I mean, I'm here. I'm here for it. I can't believe that people. Well, I mean, I can't. I know people get on me constantly for book recommendations of like, oh, it's triggering. I'm like, OK, but you picked up a book about a murder. Like, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> yeah, if you we pick have- up a book about chronic bowel disease mm-hmm. like we're gonna talk about poo poo sorry yeah people don't get so worked up about uh blood especially when it's you know like a true crime book or whatever yeah. The, yeah. the bloodier the better when it's right, like a exactly. woman getting murdered yeah no, but that's if true. you're talking about blood in your body um yeah people get a little offended by that Yeah. Okay. I want to know a little bit about your body, which this makes you actually makes me slightly uncomfortable to ask because I feel Mm. like it's inappropriate and like invasive. However, I know that you've written this book for a lot of these reasons. So I want to know, how do you navigate not only, I know that for a lot of people who write a memoir, you have to get like really honest about your family and your life Mm -hmm. and your, and your feelings and all of experiences. But in your case, you're also having to bring a level of vulnerability to your actual physical body and sharing these things about what your body does and sort of Mm -hmm. the betrayal that you felt from your body and talking about the treatments that you have and like a lot of things about not just your personal emotional state, but your physical body and how how did you navigate that? Like being open to people, even asking you about your body and talking mm-hmm. to you about your body as a person who is chronically ill. Like how yeah. how does that go? Yeah, I I think that time was on my side with this because I had been ill for on the cusp of 10 years when I started writing the book. And I had written publicly before, not in as much depth, obviously, as I talk about it in in the book, but I had written before about um, like my fecal, my first fecal transplant, which if you haven't read the book, I've had three fecal transplants for a bacterial infection called C. diff. So I had kind of like dunked my toe in the water of publicly writing gross things about my body. And The first time that I did that, which I think was in 2013, several months after my first transplant, um, that was really scary because it was the first time I had done it. And I I think I wrote about this in the book, just about how I was so terrified that like everyone would just think I was disgusting. And if you Googled me, it would be like, oh, the girl who like got the poop transplant. Like I was just like this. I don't, you know, I was also 10 years younger then. So I was much more insecure just about everything right, of course. <laughs> and more easily embarrassed, um, which I don't have that as much anymore. But the response to that piece about the fecal transplant was just so opposite of what I thought it was going to be. Hmm. Like I had a bunch of people writing to me and being like, you know, I also have bowel issues, or I also have had C. diff in the past, and or I have C. diff currently, and like, I'm on my seventh round of antibiotics, and no one has even mentioned a fecal Mm. transplant as treatment to me and that kind of stuff. And I even had people that I worked with, at the time I was working at Gawker, um, RIP to the old Gawker, (laughs) but (laughs) I was working at Gawker, and even people that I worked with in that office, like wrote me secret emails to be like, no one else at work knows that I am living with this, you know, illness, whatever. 
And so that, I think I just got so lucky with the response to that, that it made me much braver mm. to write about that kind of stuff moving That's forward. So interesting. Had people been like, oh, this is sick. And <laughs> why would you write about this? And this is so disgusting. I maybe would have just shut down and never written the book, you know? So I'm right. really thankful that the response was so surprising to me at the time and gave me this opening that I actually could write about this kind of stuff and that people would actually respond to it in a way where they were either like, this really resonates with me personally or there were all the like science nerds, microbiota nerds who wrote to me like, yeah, fecal transplants are going mainstream. <laughs> and there Love is those a nerds. shockingly large community of fecal transplant supporters out there. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was such a kind response to something that I was so, so scared then to write. And um, because the opposite happened, it was like, less scary to to talk about it in the book but also it was eight years later when I was writing the book and I was I I just had spoken about my body and what my body does and what chronically ill bodies do and disabled bodies do for so many years at that point that it was it was much less scary but I still was terrified when the book came out and I spent several weeks before the book came out considering if I should just try to pay back my advance <laughs> and cancel oh my, my book contract. I'm so glad you didn't. I had the manuscript forever. My poor, my older sister, I had so many calls with her where I was like, okay, what if I just go into hiding? <laughs> And what if I change the name on the book to a pseudonym so no one knows it's me? Like there were just... Is that just because you were nervous that people would think you were gross? Like what was it that was making you so stressed out about having your name on your story? Yeah, it was less the personal physical details and more the family stuff, I think. And that was more because I was just scared of hurting anyone who's in the book, especially my mom, because she just is still alive. Yeah. <laughs> my dad is dead. I can't hurt his feelings anymore. Right, right, right. But my mom is very much living. And I was worried about her and how she would react to people around her reading the book. And I allowed her to be pretty involved in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, I let her read sections as I was writing them. And I also let her read um, the full manuscript when it was turned into the publisher and all that kind of thing. And she had okayed everything, but I was still just, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. I didn't know if like someone close to her would read it and then come and ask her why she acted certain ways in certain situations and that kind of thing. And I just, I, I feel protective of my mom so that was that was the biggest stress leading up to the book the the physical stuff was much less stressful to me surprisingly than the emotional family you know kind of muck that um you know I had to decide how much I was going to put in and and which stories were mine to tell and all that kind of complicated right. stuff that I'm sure everyone who writes writes a memoir. A memoir yeah. yeah. That's like typical memoir drama, family, people in your life, all of that. Yeah. Um I we're going to transition a little bit away from your book into your reading habits and I just want folks to know. I'm sure you're sitting there going, I have a lot of other questions for Tessa about chronic illness, blah blah blah. I have those questions and we are going to get into that in part 2 when we talk about Yang Gru's book I Live a Life Like Yours because I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that book and mm-hmm. especially in relationship to what you wrote. And so I have a bunch of other questions <laughs> that we will get to. Um, so if you're sitting there being like, you didn't ask about this, you didn't ask about that. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> I promise you. I think it's February 23rd, the last Wednesday of the month. We're going to discuss that for the book club. So make sure you get a copy. Um, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last 
three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. All right, we are back. Um, we always do this. I didn't prep you for this, but and I, I think sometimes people think that I uh, do these ask the sacks questions and I like write them myself. And I kid you not, Tessa, the day after we booked and confirmed the time and I sent you like all the details or whatever that week, I got this email and it is truly the perfect book request moment for you. And I did not plan this and it just came in and I was like, great, done. I'm so excited, but also nervous. No, it's great. I think you'll do great. I have a lot, so it's fine if you don't have any. But this comes from Grace. And Grace says, as a person with multiple chronic illnesses who identifies as disabled, I pride myself on giving amazing recommendations for books with disability representation. However, I keep getting asked for books that I'd recommend to people who have recently been diagnosed with cancer or someone who has a close friend or relative who has been recently diagnosed. I always recommend Tessa Miller's What Doesn't Kill You, but beyond that, I'm stumped. Any suggestions? Crazy, right? That that just came in? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, are you in my brain? Or like, you know? I'm going to put that on the air immediately. Yeah, I was usually like sometimes it takes like months before I can get to some of them. But this one yeah. came in and I was like, this is weirdly perfect. <laughs> so thank you, Grace. Um, I'll go first and give a few. And then unless you have some, you look like you have some, you go first. Well, I have two that are top of mind, but I think that the first question that you would have to ask when you're choosing a book for someone who's newly diagnosed with cancer is, are they more of a realist? Like, do they want like, you know, something that's like kind of hard science-y nonfiction about how cancer works, for example, or are they someone who needs a lot of hope and optimism and something that um, is maybe less about the ins and outs of how cancer works and more like 
a memoir of someone who uh, survived cancer, something like that. When I think about illness, I'm more on the side of like, I want to know everything about how a disease works. I want the, the, the science. So uh, Emperor of All Maladies is that one was that the first I on my list. <laughs> <laughs> and the second book, which is a book that I really love is When Breath Becomes Air. But the author of that book, obviously, is no longer with us. And I think sometimes a lingering fact like that can maybe be more hurtful to someone who's newly diagnosed mm -hmm. than helpful. So a memoir about cancer of someone who has survived cancer would maybe be like Between Two Kingdoms, which I have yet to read, but a lot also of on people have recommended to me. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the three that just came to me and now I want to hear yours. <laughs> okay. So I had the exact same thought process of, well, I don't know what kind of person this is. Is the family member going to be spooked if you give them, you know, exactly. when breath becomes air? So that was on my list. Also just a small stacks plug. We did an episode on the undying of, uh, the Unwinding of the Miracle by Julie Yip Williams, who also did mm -hmm. die from her cancer. But I found the episode to be super interesting and the book to be super interesting. But again, that has a ending that the cancer, you know, was what killed this person. Now, we also did an episode on a book called The Undying by Ann Boyer that also mm -hmm. won the Pulitzer Prize, like The Emperor of All Maladies. And it's her memoir about her experience with breast cancer. She does not die, but she goes through, she has like a stage three or four breast cancer. So she goes through the full gamut of, you know, treatments and, and, and she's talking about not only her experience as like a memoir, but also doing a whole like sciencey thing and talking about the mm -hmm. cultural relevance of cancer and all of these things. So that one's really good. Um, the Cancer Journals by Audre Lorde is, mm. you know, sort of a more, uh, a little bit of a throwback text that you could look That's to. on my stacks questionnaire, Tracy. Oh, amazing. amazing. Like a book that I, I always love to recommend that one to, to anyone who's interested in chronic illness or even terminal illness. That's just a, a beautiful book. Yeah, well, now I don't have to ask you that. <laughs> and that is the, a book that I love to recommend. Yeah, to that's, I mean, I think that that's a really good choice. And then the last one is not specifically a cancer-related book. However, I have recommended this to people at all different stages of their lives for all different reasons and have yet to have anyone say anything bad about it. And this is definitely on the more like hopefully side mm -hmm. would be Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed. Mm. I just Someone gave that me book. that when I got sick. That's a perfect choice. Did it did it help when you were sick? I've never recommended it, it to someone who was sick, but I thought it seems like I'd like that. It did. I was actually um, I was hospitalized at the time. It was my long hospitalization in 2015. And my friend Brandy Zadrozny, who's a amazing reporter at NBC News now, she reports on QAnon and all of mm. <laughs> all of the uh, tentacles that come out of internet disinfo campaigns yikes um but she gave me she gave me tiny beautiful things and it was immensely comforting to me at that time so that's an excellent choice yeah and again we have an episode on that book too we have an episode on all my favorite books <laughs> I, I feel like at this point but so those would be my recommendations along with what tessa said we had all overlap on those as well um and grace mm -hmm. hopefully this helps you to you know recommend to the people in your life and other people if you're looking for book recommendations email ask the stacks at the stacks podcast dot um, okay, now we're going to get into the reading questionnaire. I'm so excited. I don't have to ask you about book you recommend because that <laughs> I now know. But we always start here. Two books you love, one book you hate. Um, okay, two books I love. I chose uh, fiction for both of my choices okay. because I thought that would be unexpected because I read 90% nonfiction. So I tried to go in the opposite direction here. And when I was choosing these... It was difficult because there are so many books that I love, but I thought about books that I recommend to people all the time. I thought about books that I have read more than once and books that I just think about often. Um, and so my two choices are Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler and uh, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Oh. And a book that I hate I don't know if this is going to be controversial or not. Oh, well, I, I kind of have two so. choices. 
Okay. <laughs> I love a controversial one hate. Is, well, I, this might not actually be controversial, but I know some people say it's like one of the greatest books ever written, whatever. Catcher in the Rye. I'm Ugh, sure despise. Despise that book. People have put it in the love and the hate. It is a book I hate. <laughs> I read that book in high school and hated it then. And then I read it again in adulthood because I thought I needed to give it another shot, you know, because like all these critics at the New Yorker will choose it as like one of the three best books ever written and whatever. I hated it more mm-hmm. <laughs> as an adult. Hate, hate, hate. And the, the other, this is more of a collection of books. <laughs> okay. And I, I think that this writer is a very nice man and I used to run into him sometimes when I worked at Condé Nast. Oh, I want to guess. It's the Malcolm Gladwell books. Oh, oh my God. Yes. <gasps> I'm so excited. Oh my God. His most recent book, Talking to Strangers. I didn't, I didn't even read it. Tracy, I've read it I twice. I've, I've read all the other ones. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't even do I it. I need to do an episode on Talking to Strangers. I hate that book so much. I actually was a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell. I really liked Malcolm Gladwell. When he was like super trendy, I was super into him. He used to be on like the Ringer podcast. Like he'd go talk to Bill Simmons or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I would like listen. And then he started his own podcast. And I liked the first season. But towards the end of the first season, he had a few episodes where I was like, "Mm, that logic is not that. I don't I don't feel like something doesn't feel great about what he's saying about this. Right. And then in the second season, there was like more episodes like that. And then I went back and I read The Tipping Point, which I thought I had read, but I guess I never had. Mm -hmm. And I was like, there's a lot of things that are not going right (laughs) for me here. And then I fucking read Talking to Strangers. I need need your summary on this because I can't do it. I can't. I haven't read it. Basically, it's about like how we interact with strangers or whatever. And he doesn't define what a stranger is. So like in some cases, a stranger is like, yeah, it's very Malcolm Gladwell. Sometimes a stranger is someone that you've worked with for 10 years. And sometimes a stranger is a, is Brock Turner who sexually assaulted Emily Doe, AKA uh, Chanel Miller, Chanel Miller. I was Mm going to say Tessa Miller. I was like, no, you're Tessa Miller. Sorry. (laughs) But like, so, so those are all strangers, first of all. But also he tries to like justify these interactions between strangers and it and it's all framed around the Sandra Bland killing or death and that traffic stop interaction. But he removes removes race from it because it's not about race. It's about strangers. And I'm like, oh, it's not. Are you out of your no, it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with policing practice. It's like it's just so it's all the talking points for liberal people who are I'm using air quotes on liberal, liberal people who don't want to talk about race, who don't see color, don't want to talk about race. Yeah, it's it's that whole like there's two sides to every story. Brock Turner didn't rape her. He was drunk. And when we're really drunk and we're young and our brains aren't formed, blah, blah. It's like I cannot have a fucking race, murder, rape, apologist situation. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, that's the whole book. And the, and it, like I, the dangerous part of that too, is that people will read that book for like a confirmation bias for the like mm-hmm. kind of thing that they're already thinking. And because Gladwell has been branded as like this intellectual and like, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. just. That's the thing. When the, And the, the issue that I've had with his other books, which it sounds like is a, is just magnified in his last one is the. Like, there's just no nuance in the discussions that he has. There's a lot of, like, just painting everything with a broad brush. And then to remove the issues that are inconvenient to your argument. Like, like I I haven't read the book, but when you're talking about how he frames the Sandra Bland murder and to take race out of that and to make it an issue of strangers, it sounds like... um, you're really trying to just manipulate um, yeah. your reader into buying your argument. And that is what troubles me. So glad we can talk about this. I feel like, yeah. I, I feel so relieved. I know. <laughs> I know. And he, and the thing that drives me crazy is he has so much street cred from like Oprah and all these places. And like, he is, 
Like, so what he says is like, oh, I'll just read it and I'll be smarter and you don't have to critically think about it because there's mm-hmm. no reason to question him because he's Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. But no, question That's the, the fuck out of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> that is he's the, tripping. the central problem. Yeah. And like, I feel like as people get older, they get more entrenched, you know, in their values and their thinking and all of that. And he has gone off a deep end that is a place that I am not super a fan of personally. Like he's just gotten like, weirdly conservative in a way that I just really which was always I think in him but you know it's just like I hate it okay okay we'll talk more about your reading because we're like running out of time and I could talk about I gotta do a I was just thinking that like you know who probably reads Malcolm Gladwell books and really likes them Green Bay quarterback Aaron Ugh. Rodgers <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So we're recording this the day after the Packers lost to the 49ers, my team of choice. And I have to tell you that I just spent all night wanting people to tweet Aaron Rodgers jokes. And I just kept <laughs> tweeting more jokes, more jokes. <laughs> like my dream. I despise Aaron Rodgers. I, I despise I am, that uh, whole. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Yeah, I am a uh, basketball girl through and through. I do not really watch football. And I think the NFL is just obviously trash abhorrent. trash mm-hmm. but oh, i was celebrating with everybody last I know. night i know i was we were we went on a, i went on a date <laughs> night with my husband for the first time since this year i think even <laughs> earlier than that and we had to have the our phone on the table and this other t- we were at the end of the game we were like screaming <laughs> and these guys were like yeah they were like uh, are you guys watching sports? And we were like we are watching sports we're <laughs> like, watching a Aaron collective Rogers. roast yeah. Anyways. Yeah. To, ugh, ugh, Aaron Rodgers. Bye. Good luck in the off season doing your own research. Um, okay. What are some books that you're looking forward to reading? Mm. So I chose three other memoirs by disabled or chronically ill uh, writers to kind of tie in with our discussion today and the discussion of I Live a Life Like Yours. And I think that these were because when you and I were discussing, like, what should we what should we choose to read? And I think these might have been in the list that I sent because I sent a few uh, disability memoirs. So one is A Face for Picasso by Ariel Henley, mm. which is one that we both really wanted to read. And I still need to read that one. Um, another one is called Gollum Girl by Riva Lehrer. And that I think won, there's this prize called like the Barbellion Prize. I hope I'm saying that right, which is, I think, one of the only literary prizes for disabled writers. Um, And I think she won that either last year or the year before. So that has been lingering on my list for a while and I need to read that. Um, And the last one is The Coward by Jared McGinnis, which uh, I hadn't heard of until recently, but really kind of piqued my interest. How much of an effort do you make to prioritize books by disabled and chronically ill writers? Mm. How much is that a part of your reading practice? Uh, It's a pretty big part of it for sure and has become more part of my practice, especially since I wrote my book and Mm. learned how challenging it is to be a disabled writer in sort of mainstream publishing Mm. because publishers still think that books about chronic illness and disability are niche and they don't really treat them as mainstream potential bestsellers. They think that they're just that only chronically ill and disabled people are, are going to read them and that these issues don't apply to everyone, which is especially laughable during uh, right. COVID pandemic. <laughs> sure, um, sure. And also just because like 99% of the people who work in publishing are non-disabled, at least in my experience. And so there's just a lot of very steep uphill battles that disabled sure. and chronically ill writers have to have to go through when they're getting their books published. And so I do make an effort now. I, uh, I use I, it used to be less before I wrote my book, and then I realized how just challenging it is. So that's been a big focus of my reading the past two or three years, I would say. Um, Do you set other reading goals? 
I don't really set goals, but I do set deadlines for myself because I operate very well on a deadline. Whenever people ask me like, you know, what my process was for writing my book, it was just, I knew I had a deadline and then I just blacked out for a year and (laughs) (laughs) woke up at some point with hopefully some words that I could turn in. But I think that's why I do so well in like, uh, academic settings too is because mm. everything's on a deadline. And if I don't have a deadline for myself, I just like never finish stuff. I, if I was just I writing know. this book for myself, I never would have finished it. It was like the contractual pressure of, you mm-hmm. know, being beholden to a publisher and knowing that this was the day I had to have it in that really pushed me to finish it. And it's the same thing for when I read books. So I try to like set a deadline for myself. Like I want to finish this book by next Saturday or whatever, depending on the length of the book. And I have to do that all the time in grad school too, because, you know, keeping up with the reading is like the biggest grad school is right. basically just like a book club. Honestly, <laughs> it's like Everybody like go read this book and then we'll meet back here in a week and we'll all talk about it. Like that's really what grad school has been for me so far. So that kind of setting deadlines for myself practice has been useful, but I do wish that I could be more goal oriented about my reading practices. And also that I would be better about like keeping track of what I read, which Mm. is also timely because I know you just released the stacks tracker, which looks uh, that that spreadsheet situation is so soothing to my brain. Um, It's gold. Yeah, because sometimes I will feel like I haven't, I'll be like, I haven't read anything lately, but then I'll realize that I actually just finished like three or four books and I have not kept track of those. And so especially like at the end of the year, when I'm thinking back about like, what did I read this year? I can't think of anything. You need a tracker. I know I really do. Um, okay. How about you said what book you love to recommend to people, but what's mm. like the last really good book someone recommended to you? Oh, uh, this is actually also the last book that I bought, um, which I have just started reading. And uh, so I can't give a full opinion on it, but I already know that it's going to be great and I love it and, and I will love it. And that is, uh, Becoming Abolitionist by Derricka Purnell. Oh, so yeah. good. So and good, I also so love that so was good. one of my favorite um book covers too from the last year. Me too. Um, Hers and yours were two of my faves. I think the flowers growing out of things. Flowers growing out of something grotesque. Like the I love I love her book cover, especially because it reminds me of like in sci-fi when nature starts to take things back for itself mm-hmm, and it just mm-hmm. made, like she has the cop car with the flowers and vines and stuff growing out and it just makes me think of like oh the land is like reclaiming this thing that we don't need anymore and so I love that I've, I'm only maybe a quarter of the way through but I love her oh my god it gets so writing, much better her, yeah her writing style is is I, I love people who make difficult topics very readable um and that they're thinking about a wide readership and um yeah she's just she's great okay what are your reading snacks you sort of set us up earlier oh okay so I'm a big big snacker because of my illness it is hard for me to keep weight on So I am constantly snacking. And like I said earlier, there are so many good gluten-free snacks now. But even 10 years ago, like gluten-free was just not a thing that you would see in the grocery store. So now there's all kinds of things. One of my absolute favorite snacks right now is gluten-free double stuff Oreos. Oh. Gluten-free Oreos, I think just came out within the last year. I had not had an Oreo since... I got diagnosed with celiac, which was 2013, I want to say. It was one of the best moments of my life, cracking those Oreos <laughs> open, having one. Oh my God. Sometimes I'll just eat like a whole sleeve of them for dinner with milk. I drink cow's milk. I know that that's also very- I drink cow's milk. Very no, controversial, it's... but I like cannot fuck with like nut milks and stuff. I just, I want, I don't know. I guess it's because I was raised in the got milk era when everyone was just like, funneling cow's milk. I am team milk. 
I'm team milk. I'm yeah. team real cow's milk. People always are like, do you work for the milk lobby? I'm like, you know what? I fucking do. Okay. Someone's probably going to. I'm allergic to nuts, so I can't oh, have well, the nut milk. Oat milk is gross to me. Rice it. milk is gross to I've me. I've tried them all. Hemp milk is disgusting. It's all gross. Uh, give me a cow's udder. I have, I'm I here. Have Let's do it. I have tried them all, and I'm sure somebody's probably going to email you and be like, you should tell Tessa that cow's milk gave her Crohn's disease because I've gotten that before too, that like. That's probably what gave me Crohn's, but I'm telling you. Well, even if it did, you're here now, so I drink I the can't milk. Do anything I mean, like about at this it. point, you can't fix it. You might as well enjoy the milk. Also, if you email me that, I'm literally gonna destroy. I'm gonna send you a <laughs> nasty you. email Thank back. You. Yeah. Um, so that is one of my favorites. I went through like various snacking phases during the pandemic, especially when we were in full-on lockdown pre-vaccine. Mm. Um, and one of those phases was that I had to have a bowl of cereal every night, but I called it my night soup. Okay. <laughs> I'd be like, Ooh, time for my night soup. And now my husband has a bowl of cereal every night and calls it his night soup. It's like a whole ridiculous thing. What's the cereal? What's the cereal? That so you're going to? I have to have gluten-free cereal. Um, but I, there's lots of there's that, lots like of all that. those rice, of, like, checks, rice checks, corn yeah. checks. And I yeah. recently found out when I was going through my night soup phase that <laughs> honey nut Cheerios are gluten free, oh, which I did Cheerio. not know. But those those were good. My husband's go to is cinnamon toast crunch, which he calls mm. CTC. Um, okay. <laughs> that's not gluten free. That's not gluten free. I cannot have that one. I wish that I could though, because I'm a big fan of like. The cinnamon stuff falling off. The cinnamon, the milk. Do you have the cinnamon checks? They're yes. rice, cinnamon rice checks. So good. Very similar. I love those. Sometimes more than a cinnamon toast crunch because sometimes cinnamon toast crunch is just, it's too much. Yeah. I like the rice check because it's, it's a little light. lighter. The milk yeah. really gets in there. It's all about the milk. It's a vehicle for the milk, yeah. guys. Yeah. So, checks, the whole line of checks is good. Um, so, I was like, I tried the vanilla checks and the chocolate and the cinnamon and the peanut butter. Peanut butter is also mm. good. Um, Have you ever done Magic Spoon? They sponsor the show. I haven't, I but I, I've heard their ad on your show and I've also seen it. I get ads for them on Instagram all the time and I'm like about to pull the trigger on Magic Spoon. I have to try I it. I like them. Yeah. I like them because I don't, I mean, it's not, it's not a full sugar cereal moment, right. but I like that there's protein in it because I never get enough protein. And so for me, it's like, after I do a little like yoga and I'm yeah. supposed to eat like a raw chicken breast or whatever, I'm oh, like, no. no, let me just go have a I bowl of sugar cereal. cereal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then my lat, like the snack that I've been eating my entire life since childhood is a snack plate, which I grew up and learned that that was just like a charcuterie board, but mm -hmm. uh, we grew up poor. So no one in my house was calling it a charcuterie right. board. We were like, oh, sure. I want a snack plate, which the basis of is always like cheese and crackers. And mm -hmm. then you can add whatever you want. So olives, pickles, any kind of salami, whatever. You might throw some grapes on there, anything. And that's like still my, I'll even eat that for dinner sometimes. Or I'll like make a, a big plate. make a big one for me and my husband to share. It just like I don't know. It comforts me. <laughs> Reminds me of childhood. My mom. Plate. I would. I would. I used to ask my mom to make me a snack plate, and then it would be like a surprise of what was going to be on it. And so that was always like exciting for me as a kid. It was like a treat. And sometimes I'll have a snack plate every day. I just I'll, I I'll eat this. one every single day. Okay. We're running out of time. So I'm going to ask you a few more book okay, questions. I'll go but we fast. have to do sort of rapid fire, rapid fire. Okay. Last book to make you laugh. Uh, there was a couple lines in I Live a Life Like Yours that made me, it's not a, it's not a necessarily funny book, but there were mm -hmm. two lines in there that made me laugh out loud. And I'll, I'll tell you what those are when we talk about it for book club. Okay. No, I can't wait. <laughs> Last book that made you cry. Seek You. Oh, so good. Last book that made you angry? Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Freire. Mm. Last book that made you feel like you learned a lot? Mm. I read this book called um, Other People's Words, The Cycle of Low Literacy for uh, graduate school, which is about Appalachia and the chronic 
cycles of non-literacy in generations of Appalachian families. I learned a lot in that book. Any books that you feel proud about having read? Mm. Oh, you know what? I was a Russian lit minor in college Mm. and I had to read all of the the meaty Russian books and I'm proud to have read those. I don't think I would want to do it again, but I'm proud that I did it. Good for you. I did Anna Karenina once and I'm never, <laughs> never going doing back, it again. Baby. Yeah. All done. Check, please. <laughs> Any book that you feel embarrassed about not having read? I haven't read like a lot of the sci-fi classics oh, like Dune and oh. Electric oh. Sheep and all, all these books that I feel like people talk about a lot, especially in like Twitter discourse, but I don't know if I'm embarrassed in not having read those or if I feel like I should. I have complex feelings. Yeah, you're fine. I saw the movies. <laughs> I saw the movies instead. I not. It's a no. All of it is a no for me. Okay, if you were a teacher, which one day you will be soon, I guess. Mm. Uh, what's a book you would assign to high school students? Um, this was a hard choice, but I went with. Uh, the new Jim Crow. Mm. You miss, see, you're not ready to be a professor yet. You missed the opportunity to sign right. your book. <laughs> Tessa, we got to get you to sign your book. <laughs> no, I mean, the, I got to call Crow. myself a writer first. Before yeah, we're getting there. You call, you call me. I'm going to coach you up. I'm going to get you real good. <laughs> okay. Last one. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Um, I would make Biden read Health Justice Now by Timothy Foss, which is mm. a case for universal health care. That's a fantastic choice. Also, <laughs> your book, your book fits in too. Yeah. Joe. Joe, read two books. Joe, read two. <laughs> um, all right, everybody. Tessa's book, What Doesn't Kill You, is now out in paperback as of today. Please go get it if you haven't read it yet. I also want to plug the audiobook. It's fantastic. I listened and I really, really loved it. I felt like I got to know you. It was just very, uh, it was a great experience. Bless on my walks. you for listening to my voice for 10 hours. <laughs> I, it was great. I mean, I listened on 1.5. I'm going to be honest. It wasn't quite 10 oh, hours no, for me. Oh, no, that's the way to do it. Yeah, I got to go fast. Six and a half hours. Yeah, yeah, a little shorter. And we will be back February 23rd to discuss Jan Gru's book, I Live a Life Like Yours for the Stacks Book Club. So please get your copy and come back and read with us. Tessa, thank you for being here. Thanks, Tracy. This was such a thrill. Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the Stacks. All right, that does it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Tessa for being my guest. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for February is I Live a Life Like Yours by Jan Gru. We will be discussing the book on the podcast on Wednesday, February 23rd with Tessa Miller. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. And please make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you're listening to your podcasts. And if you listen through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is the wonderful Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 